so welcome to our final class today, lesson number six, and today's class is entitled Beyond Presumption, Presuming Every every Person's Goodness. So, to start off today's class, we're going to ask the following three questions. Do any of you possess any biases, conscious biases? Okay. Yes, that sounds like a yes to me. Do you suppose that you possess any unconscious biases? Okay. Are, out of those biases that you do consider that you have, are they positive? Are they a positive bias about, about whatever you may have? That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> do you think that a person... Uh, is that your bias about a certain individual that whatever they do is right? Oh, or your bias? My bias is a like negative. Your bias is a negative. There you go. Well, in order to actually define or to properly explore what a bias is, let's first look in the Webster's Dictionary and find out what bias is. How do we define the word bias? So we have over here from two dictionaries, Oxford Online English Dictionary and from the Merriam-Webster.com. And let's see what it means bias. Text number one, A, and page 167. Prejudice in favor or against one thing or person or group compared with another, usually in a way considered to be unfair. So if you're prejudiced either to a thing, a person, or a group, in an unfair way, that is called a bias, according to the Oxford Online English Dictionary. Text number 1b tells us that what a bias is, an inclination of temperament or outlook, especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. Do you see a difference between these two definitions? Like unreasoned judgment, you're not thinking it out. Okay, so let's take a. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Unfair is just, you don't care. Okay, so let's talk about one of the most probable biases that we have. Who do you think you're most biased for? Who do you think you're most biased for? Yourself. Yourself. Yeah. The thing that we're most biased for, we find most favor in ourselves. We're all colored with a level of self-bias. Even the people that are most honest amongst us, without necessarily meaning to do so, we indefinitely, automatically interpret circumstances that we do in a way that are fine favorable for us. So for example, and I'm sure you can look at exercise 6.2, if I give you four scenarios, if it was you that it happened to, you have 610 excuses of why it happened. If it was somebody else that it happened to, you will already have an adjective for that person. So for example, you come home late one day, it was traffic, I had to be in work for an extra five minutes, I had to stop off at the store, it was a need, while when somebody else comes. Come on, you don't understand people waiting for you? What are you, you don't care less than everything else. The same idea if you're in a bad mood, you have six excuses that you went to sleep late, you were going to go to sleep late, you almost went to sleep late, but somebody else walks into the office in a bad mood. What's this guy? Couldn't he get another sleep? Couldn't he go to sleep early? Whatever it may be. And the same thing is also a missed appointment. 
How many times do we have a bunch of different reasons why we missed that appointment? But if somebody else will miss that appointment with you, what kind of careless person doesn't value my time? Doesn't mean anything to him? And we have a bunch of reasons. Somebody leaves a mess, it's your mess, it's okay. Somebody else's mess, that's it. The guy's a slob. So automatically, and all of us are in this, I need to speak for myself, we have, it's how is it possible that the same exact thing that happens, all of a sudden I judge myself differently. An interesting thing, just as a side note, in Jewish law, the concept of self-bias is something which is underscored to the greatest extent. Meaning, that if any person has any type of bias, they're automatically disqualified from being a witness or a judge. So for example, Moses and Aaron cannot be witnesses together. They're the most honest people in the world, right? Moses and Aaron. But because they are related to one another, so therefore they inherently have bias to one another, they cannot be witnesses. If Moses were to see an incident, if he was a witness at a crime, Moses wouldn't be able to be the judge at the crime. That means Jewish law takes self-bias to an extreme that automatically you can't be a witness in any of those situations. While common law, secular law, says all you have to do is announce it, make a disclosure that you want the type of relationship, whatever you may have here, and you can be a witness. Well, I think a wife is not or a spouse is not. And depending on what thing is civil and criminal, the two different cases, I think in criminal they'll take the spouse. <laughs> but in uh, civil, they, in certain cases, yes. But as we're going to get to later on. But the concept is that the court has to then take into account the court can discount, if I'm not mistaken, the judge can say you have too much of a bias and therefore we can dismiss your judgment. But the important point over here is it's not an automatic. In Judaism, a self-mind is an automatic no-no of you being a witness for the scene. In secular court, as long as you disclose it, then the judge has the right or the jury to say, do we want to take this person, whatever it may be. But why is it? Why is it when it comes to... Um, to ourselves, we are automatically have that bias. And the reasons are very simple. When we have, when something comes to ourselves, we automatically have a favorable outlook. We automatically look at things differently. And all of a sudden we establish a certain fact. And since we establish a fact, which is, I am a good person. And therefore, if I happen to make a mistake, that's not who I am. So automatically, I have to find a favor for myself. When it comes to somebody else, unfortunately, we don't have the same standard. And all of a sudden, we view the negative person as circumstantial. That means we're going to call the person a thief because he once stole. Not because he's a good person that may have made a mistake and stole. We call him a thief based on the incident that happened. While ourselves, we're going to say, I'm a good person. Not a lapse of judgment. And that's what we're going to justify ourselves. And at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, we're always judging people. Like the guy that says, some people are just so judgmental, I can tell by just looking at them. <laughs> Why? Because we never find something favorable when judging somebody else. And therefore, or like the other story, when you go to somebody else and they do a bad job, you don't say, oh, he just had a bad day that day. And all of a sudden, ourselves, we always don't have that ability. 
and therefore we don't, and all of a sudden, the offense is the only fact that we have, and that's what we judge the person by. But the question is, why is it different? Why is it that by the other person, we all of a sudden find that offense, and that's what defines the person? And by us, we define ourselves, and our offense is only a small, minute detail in who we are in the whole picture. The same thing is also you can talk about the similar observation when you talk about critique. Criticism. When a person comes along and says, you know, when a person says, stands up and makes some self-defacing um, comment. Says, you know, I here have some food, but I'm a terrible cook. What's he in essence saying? I am a wonderful person. I just happen to have one flaw. But when you look at somebody and says, you know, you're a terrible cook. What are you telling that person? All you are, in summary, is a terrible cook. And you don't look at the details of all the wonderful things that the person may have done. And I'm sure these arguments can come up in any type of relationship whenever people have a spat with one another. This is when the judgment and the biasness comes out to the forefront. You can have two people. I'm sure you can go to many therapists and they see this in counseling at all times, whether it's between co-workers or partners or uh, spouses. And they're both complaining, if you take them both out of the room, not in front of each other, they're both saying the same complaint about, wherever he goes, he leaves a mess. Wherever she goes, she leaves a mess. What's the problem? It's their mess that's the problem. Their own mess is not the problem. It's the other person's mess. And this is the same idea when it comes to shortcomings. All of these situations, what's the difference? Aren't they exactly the same thing? Isn't the difference if I'm a terrible cook or they're a terrible cook, what's the difference? And the question is, where is the shortcoming? Is the shortcoming what defines the person? Or is the shortcoming only something in the person? But the question over here then, we mean, so is self-bias a good thing or a bad thing? Should people have that self-bias? Or should people not have that self-bias? Is it something we can get rid of? Is it something which is not a, a or is it a temper? And there is the difference if I look at it from the two definitions in the dictionary. If I look at it from a way that self-bias is prejudicial bias, as we mentioned, that if it's one person looking at a group of others, then it's a very bad thing. But if it's defined as an inclination or a temperament and an outlook, like the Webster Dictionary puts it, then it can be a very positive, as long as I have an inclination to positive things, to good things. But if it's, a, if it's a bias that means I'm prejudiced about other people, then that self-bias is something we should get rid of. At the end of the day, all people should be treated different, uh, the fairly. And judging yourself with a positive bias, but judging others objectively, even with a negative bias, is certainly unfair and unjust. The Torah teaches us what's the most desirable way to judge another person is not only to endeavor to extend our self-bias onto another person, but we should always take away our one-side competitive advantage and we should extend that to all other people as well. In the words of the Torah, text number 2a, and book from the book of Leviticus, you shall judge your fellow with righteousness. What the Torah is telling us over here is take away the competitive edge. Make sure when you judge a person, judge that person in an equal playing field. It's like the story of the judge who begins the court and says, you know, I received the bribe from both of you today. <laughs> one of you gave me 10000 one of you gave me 15000 And he writes out a check for 5000 and gives it to one of you. 
wants to make a fair claim. On a literal level, what's the Torah telling us? You shall judge your fellow with righteousness. What does this mean? So the Jewish oral law in, explains to us that the judges have to treat the litigants that come before them equally. Meaning, don't grant one side preferential treatment and listen to their arguments while they're both there. And this comes to a whole set of laws that you can't listen to one without the other. You have to make sure both of them are there. You have to give them, you can't look at one rich's rapport, whatever it may be. But Jewish ethical teachings go on to say that this is not only a question of judgment of a person that comes in two litigants in front of a judge, but every single one of us in our own life. And it says as follows. The Chinuch puts it this way in text number 2b. Included in this commandment is the instruction to each individual to judge their fellows favorably and to deliberately interpret their conduct and statements in a positive light. Through judging others favorably, we will foster peace and harmony among people as a result of eliminating mutual suspicion. The Jewish ethicists over here are telling us it's not a question about being gullible. It's not a question about being naive. If you see the guy's a real piece of work, then of course, you know, you have to know what to do. But at the same time, when we come to an individual, it's not a question of keeping our eyes closed and not recognizing when somebody does something wrong. But the Torah is asking us to extend that self-biasness. That even if a person is generally good and we don't know anything about them, your first reaction should be to judge them favorably. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov even took it a step further. The Baal Shem Tov used to say, what does it mean, Be'ahafta l'reach love your fellow as yourself? Means that the same way for yourself, you have a bias and you find excuses and reasons for things that you may have done wrong. So to even when you see somebody do something wrong, extend that excuse for them as well. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they woke up in a bad mood. Maybe they didn't sleep enough. But over here, what it's telling us is that the mitzvah applies to people we know have good character, but even people that we don't know which way we are. And all of a sudden we hear something, maybe, did they or didn't they? We have to ask ourselves, is one person just focusing on one part of the person's life? Is he really a good person and he may have had a lapse of judgment? Is there something more to the story here? And therefore, at least our conclusive mind should not be of viewing them in a negative light. While we all know humans are very complex beings, and we all have the gener generally have the capacity to be good, kind, altruistic, but we can also be mean, cruel, selfish, and unlike other creations, we aren't bound to any particular specific mode of conduct. And therefore, one of the most important faculties that a human being has is free choice. And sometimes we behave as upstanding citizens, and sometimes we don't behave the way we're supposed to. But what is the natural default of the human state? Are we generous and kind by nature, and we learn to be cruel and mean? Or are we cruel and mean and we have to mature and learn to be good and kind? And this is an old question that was debated by philosophers many times. Of what is it? And this reality has never been settled. One of the very famous people who discussed it was the very famous good old Jew by the name of Sigmund Freud. What was his Hebrew name? Schmiel or something like that. Sigmund Freud, and he was considered the father of modern psychology, even though many of his things have already been debunked ever since then, but had decidedly a negative view 
of human nature. And here's what Freud says, text number three. Freud says, men are not gentle creatures who want to be loved and who the most can defend themselves if they are attacked. They are, on the contrary, creatures among those who instinctive them down is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness. In his words, homo homini lupus, man is a wolf to man, who in the face of all his experience of life and history will have the courage to dispute the assertion. Freud considered it clearly as he looked in history. He says, look back in history. Look what it's riddled with. Evil. Everybody's trying to undermine one another. Kill each other. Beat each other up. Everybody in every single way, in every shape or form. Yes, you have a nice, a few outstanding citizens that happen to be nice to one another. But by and large, what does the world run on? Dictatorship. Acrimony. Theft. Robbery. Killing, wars. This is the way Freud saw the world. If Freud lived in a time, even right after him, actually, not only in his time, but he was in the 1930s, he was coming from Tsarist Russia, Napoleon, but even after him, you had a Hitler, you had a Stalin, you had a Mao, all these people. What were they about? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Many of them. All examples that we didn't just happen. 70 years ago. It's not like it happened many years ago. Though Freud was before, or before all of these, but I'm sure he had his share that he's looked back in history. And Freud asks that this premise regarding negativity of the human being is disputable. And according to Freud, the human being, by nature, is an animal, is a beast. It happens to be that at times they do nice things. Well, he says, you know, an animal is also nice to its own cubs. You know, the lion treats its cubs nicely, too. But Carl Rogers, one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century, certainly did have the courage to question Freud's premise and express the positive view of human nature. And in text number four, he says as follows. One of the most revolutionary concepts to grow out of the clinical experience is the growing recognition that the innermost core of man's nature, the deepest layers of his personality, the base of his animal nature, is positive in nature. It's basically socialized, forward-moving, rational, and realistic. Roger over here isn't questioning the existence of people who are actually. What he is saying is that these traits are not the base nature of the human being. He was actually a student of Freud, who also negated what Freud said, his name was Viktor Frankl, who lived through the Holocaust. And Viktor Frankl, during the concentration camp, he wrote a book, I forgot what it's called, a, 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 a Man of Meaning or something like that, something of that nature, I forgot the actual, whatever it was, but his point was that in the Holocaust he saw that while there was evil all around them, of people trying to kill people for no other reason, just who they were, but in the concentration camp he saw people who were helping at one last morsel of bread, they were sharing with somebody else. He said, if that isn't showing you that the human being, by definition, is kind. And though often our strongest memories are negative ones, and you think about it, what, what do you remember more? A nightmare or a good dream? Usually the nightmare is what you wake up from. The good dream you forget the next day. The same thing in our life. What scars a person's memory is the negative events that happen in their life. 
And therefore, what do we always think back and reflect on our go-to area? Maybe the negative. But if we stop for a moment and look back, we'll see all the generosity, all the kindness. Even in today's world, you know, everybody says, oh, the world is crazy out there. It's so bleak. It's so, you know, look around. The amount of kindness, charitable, generosity that's going on. Even in the Ukraine, where you see there's a tyrant on one end. But look at the billions of dollars that countries from around the world that gave or promised, or even regular individuals, helping people coming out of a torn world country, helping them. That means we can, of course, we remember the evils of history. And we should remember the evils of history, because the only way we remember it, by remembering history, we make sure it doesn't happen again. But if we take a broad view of history, what would you say? Do we think that today are we moving in the right direction, or are we regressing? Is our world more with evil than in the past, or less with evil in the past? Which one do you think? More evil. You think there's more evil? No question, less. that. And I, think, and I think the only reason there is apparently less evil in the world is because of the threat of nuclear war and destruction and mutual destruction of everyone. Yeah. So that everybody is fearful of going that far. But when you look at the world that Xi Jinping and Putin as the two leaders of the very populous, most powerful countries in the world, there is evil all around. Okay. But there's always been evil like that. Always. Your heart, or just kill you, rape and kill your wife, or something like that. Today we don't do that. So, so let's like Russia. All right, Maybe. Okay, let, let's let's find out. So we're still going to get there. But even though, as we can see, that there's a difference of opinion. So we have the Carl, we have the Carl Rogers here. That our basic human nature is positive, and therefore the world is getting a better place. And we have the Sigmund Freud that the basic human condition is negative, is aggressive and aggressors, and therefore the world is just getting worse as we go on. But let's move on and take that in mind, and let's take that and move it to the next step. A basic rule in the modern justice system is that if a person's accused of a crime, we all know this, a presumption which is that a person is innocent until proven guilty. And this is all based um, on the American legal system, and this is based on the fourth, uh, on the flow from the 5th and the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which establishes that no person may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and therefore, every single person is innocent until proven guilty. The Fourth Amendment tells us, nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, property without process of law. The 14th, and that was the 5th Amendment, I'm sorry, and the 14th Amendment tells us, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, and property without the process of law. However, when you look over here in text number five, we can see that the jury's what a model of the jury's instruction explaining what the presumption of innocence is, according to the Massachusetts District Court. Text number five. The law presumes the defendant to be innocent of the charge or all charged against him or her. This presumption of innocence is a rule of law that compels you to find the defendant not guilty unless and until the Commonwealth produces evidence from whatever source that proves of the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
The burden of proof never shifts. The defendant is not required to call any witnesses or produce any evidence, since he or she is presumed to be innocent. The presumption of innocence stays with her, the defendant, unless the evidence convinces you unanimously as a jury that the defendant is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. It requires you to find the defendant not guilty unless his or her guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. What we see over here is that what does secular tell us? There's a presumption of innocence beyond reasonable doubt, and unless you can prove that there's a presumption of innocence of this individual, and they are not responsible to prove anything. Jewish law also has a legal presumption. The Jewish law presumption is not only about that they're innocent, but is also a concept of righteousness. Now, in order to understand this, we first have to preface, we're going to, in the next text, let's first preface a concept in Jewish law. The concept in Jewish law is that where the next text we're going to talk about is the law pertaining to kosher animals. A living animal, for example, is non-kosher and is forbidden for consumption. The only way a person's allowed to eat a living animal is if it's slaughtered and it's no longer living. That means slaughtering the animal according to Jewish law being that the starting point of the animal. So when I see an animal, what's its starting point? What do I view it as? Non-kosher. It only becomes kosher once I slaughtered it in accordance with Jewish law. Then I've taken it out of its non-kosher status and I've made it kosher. Now, not every person can be kosher. Not every properly slaughtered animal is kosher also. If I have an animal which is not healthy, won't be able to live for 12 months, that animal is called a trefa. That's actually where the word trefa comes from. When we say the opposite of kosher is trefa, it actually comes from animals, that an animal that cannot live for 12 months is not a kosher animal. How do I know if the animal wouldn't be able to live for 12 months? It is generally most animals are healthy. But if we know that there's a problem, so for example, we know that we can check the lungs of the animal, and should there be lesions on the lungs, we know that that animal wasn't healthy, and that animal probably would not survive. That's why the term glot kosher, glot means smooth, because they check the lungs to make sure that there are no lesions on the lung, and to make sure that that animal is a perfectly healthy animal. The general law is, that since vast majority of animals will survive 12 months, we don't have to check, we don't have to be prophets to make sure that the animal will live another 12 months and therefore they're kosher. And we rely on the presumption that the animal is healthy unless it has issues, unless there should be some other reason to tell us that maybe this animal is not healthy. For example, if it has a broken limb, or for example, it was kept in conditions that were not healthy for the animal. It had certain shots, it had certain injuries. Or, as we check the lung, if it has lesions, and therefore we can presume that it may not be kosher. So what happens over here is, we know now, so what is the presumed status of this animal? It's non-kosher. By slaughtering it, I'm taking it out of its previous status and making it kosher. With that in mind, let's read the following text. It is clear in an established law that we are all presumed to be righteous. This is analogous to a presumptuous we use regarding the kosher status of animals. As long as an animal is alive and is forbidden for consumption, 
as it's presumed to be, have remained in the state that a mother can ascertain that it has been slaughtered properly. Once the animal has been slaughtered properly, it is then presumed to be kosher unless it is clearly proven to be non-kosher due to severe physical defects. Similarly, God created each of us upright and honest by nature. People retain this presumption of righteousness unless it has been clearly proven that they have chosen to veer from the way of truth and righteousness and follow a deceitful and crooked path. What the Marjdam, who is the author of this quote, is a known and very commentator on code of Jewish law. Over here, what he's telling us over here is there's something called chazaka. Chazaka means I take things for the way they are in the existing status. And there is no reason for me to change the status of it unless I have a deciding factor to make that status different. And he said the same way when it comes to this animal. Though the animal is non-kosher before him, but by me slaughtering the animal, I make it kosher and I presume that because majority of animals will survive over 12 months, this is as well. The same thing as well, the Marishan says, applies to every single Jewish person, every single human being, that I presume that they are righteous people until they prove me wrong. So who do you think the Marishan is going according to? Freud? Or Carl Rogers. Rogers. See, secular law assumes that the presumption of innocence. Jewish law takes it even a step further. That means secular law tells us that there's a presumption of innocence, but it doesn't tell about the character of the individual. You can have a person who did something terribly wrong. He can be a monster. But as long as the DA can't prove it, or the court can't prove it, he'll get off the hook. Presumption of innocence doesn't tell me the individual. Tells me about evidence. Judaism takes it a step further. Presumption of righteousness of the individual. That this individual is an actual healthy individual, and therefore, he's a righteous person until we see him doing something wrong. Oh, we're going to get to it in a moment. Let's find out. Now, just because people may be fundamentally negative doesn't mean that they are kind of guilty of every single possible accusation made against them. Essentially, what we have over here is that secular legal principle of presumption and innocence is in order, is just the other side of the coin of making what a standard of evidence may be. On the other hand, Jewish law considers that people are innocent until proven guilty, but and the standard of evidence required according to Jewish law would be much higher than in secular law. Because in secular law, all I need to do is bring more evidence to the fact that happened, not about the individual. In Jewish law, I would have to bring in the evidence that would change the righteousness of this person, not just of an occurrence. What the Maharaj Dam is explaining here is that the presumption of righteousness is based on the assessment of human nature. That because we were created in a righteous and therefore we are presumed to stay righteous. Just like the animal who is presumed to be a non-kosher animal until it is slaughtered. And once it is slaughtered it is presumed to be kosher. So to every single human being is presumed to be kosher, righteous, until they prove us otherwise. Why is this? 
What makes the human being so unique? What's the belief that every single person is, is human nature, is positive, is righteous, is something that we say in our prayers every single day? Text number seven. My God, the soul, you have placed in me as pure. You created it, you formed it, you breathed it into me, and you preserved it within me. The fact that our identity is pure, that we have a divine soul, doesn't mean that we're all perfect. Doesn't mean that we can't make mistakes. But what it is saying is that our core identity, our true self, is holy. And as we read two weeks ago in the Torah reading, we talk about a sin that a woman may have transgressed and she had a, mis- uh, a promiscuous affair. But what is the terminology that the Torah says? The Allah And the Talmud explains and says, text number eight, people only transgress when they are overcome by a spirit of foolishness. Over here, the Torah, the Talmud is telling us that the person inherently doesn't want to do her own. The only reason why they're doing something wrong is because they become possessed by their evil inclination. Because all of a sudden the spirit, the folly comes into them and they think that they can do something wrong. Whereas they want to say in second world, they'll think they can get away with it. But is it truly them? Is that who the person is? Is that how you would define them? Absolutely not. The soul is pure. The soul is holy. Their core essence is something which is, which is even beyond their evil inclination as it's explained in Tanya. That even from the highest level of the soul, it can't get hurt or destroyed or, or ruined by any type of behavior. So what is an acquired mode of conduct? Is the foolishness? Is the evil? Is the cruelty that exists? But what is the human being inherently? Holy, pure, and righteous. And therefore, when I judge a person and I look at a person, what am I first instance should be? To look at the righteousness. Are we saying that all human beings are righteous or Jews are righteous? That's a very good question. Because you're asking that because we're using the terminology soul. Yeah. So and every and single human being has a soul. And because I think of things like call Yisrael and things of that nature, where there's a, there's a tendency to say, well, if the Jews press the button, then we're, we're, we're happy with it. If the Jew doesn't press the button, then uh, we so assume there's a problem. So there's a difference because as follows. There's, and there's, we're going to get to it in a moment about Jewish law. In Jewish law, something that I'm not careful about, I cannot do for you. And even in today's uh, kosher industry, for example, call of Yisrael, just to use that example, which means milk that was milked by a Jew, or a Jew washed it. In most kosher industries and supervisions, even though there are many religious Jews that drink non-call of Yisrael milk, in a factory that they want to have somebody supervising call of Yisrael, they will only hire a person who they themselves observe. Why? Because if I'm not careful about it, I can't make sure that you'll be careful about it. Because I'll say, eh, what's the big deal? If the mistake happens. It's just a tendency of human being. The same idea is when we come to human being, Jew versus non-Jew. There's the concept of a Ben Noach. Every single non-Jew has a soul, not the same soul that a Jew has. A Jew has the godly soul that we talk about, the two souls, the, the godly and divine intuition and the, and the evil inclination. And the freedom of choice is more deliberate by the Jew because the Jew has more laws to observe. While the non-Jew has 
seven archive laws and whatever branch off of it. And within those seven archive laws, they have the choice to observe it as not as well. And that's where their divine soul comes to play. And from a perspective of the Jew, of non-Jewish soul, within the seven archive laws, yes, they are inherently good. So if we want to talk about, let's say killing, because that's one of the Noachite laws. A non-Jew inherently doesn't want to kill. It's only because he grows up with certain type of mentality, or he's overcome by an egotism or a narcissism which causes him to do it. If we want to look at it from this perspective. Yeah. In the Gentiles, yes. So a Gentile, in the level of Gentiles, which takes us to a different, it is something called a righteous Gentile, but a righteous Gentile, by definition, is a Gentile who observes the seven Noachite laws to the full extent. That's what a righteous Gentile is. And it, as the Talmud states, when it talks about the Jews that get a portion of the world to come, it says a righteous Gentile also has a portion of the world to come should he observe his part of the commandment. But for the most part, and what we're talking about in this discussion, just to make it clearer, you know, more de definitive, would be about Jews. Mm -hmm. Because most of the laws that we're going to talk applying to is about the Jewish people. So in our first example, let's take, in the laws of kosher, let's go back to the laws of kosher for a moment. The laws of kosher are very complex, especially when it comes to slaughtering. In order to be a ritual shochet, they're very delicate. There are five things that a shochet has to be careful with, as we're soon going to see, which can ruin the animal from being kosher. Now, in order to be a shochet, one of the things we have to be is a real yiri shemayim in all of God. Because remember, that animal that you're slaughtering 200 pounds of meat, if that becomes non-kosher, you might lose your job. And in order to know that it's kosher, Here's, a, for example, the knife has to be completely uh, sharp. You have to be able to cut the animal without applying pressure. It has to be so sharp that by just passing the knife over the animal's neck, it should automatically kill it with an instant because we don't want to cause the animal any pain. So there cannot be any niches in the knife. There cannot be any pressure applied to the knife. There has to make sure that all the sun didn't cut through both of the... of the has to cut through the... Um, it has, to, it has to cut through the windpipe and then the fruit pipe, the majority of the pipe, and to make sure that it's all done properly. Many of these things, you're putting your hand in the trust of the person that's doing it. There's almost no way to measure if the person applied pressure or not. So basically, a kosher slaughterer, a shochet, we're going to call him, must have a good knowledge of the laws and a technique of implementing them properly, that means even when they hold the chicken to make sure that he's not putting any pressure or torturing or hurting the chicken in any way. And because of the specialized nature, only a person who has been proven to be a, an experienced shochet, and the way you know that is if another shochet trains him, plus a rabbi supervises to see that he knows the law, only then can they be a shochet. Let's see, in my mind, at least how he qualifies it. A Jew who doesn't know the law about shechita, Kosher? It depends on the person's talent. This is something that's a technique. Mm -hmm. So you have people that uh, can do it very quickly. It's the law that they have to learn. The hardest part of shita today is actually sharpening the knife. It's not even the slaughtering. Because you can, there's such a big area of space that you can slaughter 
and uh, that will make it kosher. So, and the main thing is that if your knife is not sharp enough, then you might apply pressure. So the most important part is that the knife is slaughtered. I'm, I'm sorry, the knife is sharp and had to sharpen the knife to make it that there should not be any uh, niches in it. Every single time. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, sure. My grandfather was a Shanghai. The one that was a Shanghai, but he uh, lost his finger because of being a Shanghai. And Coney Island Abbey was going back in the 50s, that's why I, mean, I met, met him, but that the uh, one that's an animal got left loose and knocked up, and he did it. It was so sharp, he didn't even know he lost his finger. That's how sharp these knives are. And this with chickens, you see always when they do the kaparas, you know, before you kipper, they slaughter the chickens right there. But the most difficult part is, is the knife. And the way the Alter Rebbe, the first Kabbalah Rebbe, set the knife was that you, it's sharp on both ends. That means it's not that you have to sharpen both, not the top and the bottom, but the right and the left. This way, no pressure is put at all. They want us, even today, chefs, you ask a chef, how do you know if a, tom- if a knife is sharp? If you can cut a tomato, why do you try a tomato? No, a double-edged blade. A double-edged blade, but not only why a tomato, for example, because a tomato is, you know, it's smooth. And unless it's really sharp, we'll cut it right through. A dull knife, you'll have to hold the tomato or jump or whatever maybe. But sharpening the knife is the biggest technique, and that takes the longest amount of time to learn. In fact, when a rabbi comes to a slaughterhouse, his first thing would be, he wants to see the technique of how to sharpen the knife, and he will check all the slaughterer's knife. Even in today, in a butcher shop, or in a whatever, in a slaughterhouse, there's an obligation that most kosher standards put into place, that after every certain amount of chickens or animals, the neighboring shochet will have to check the other person's knife or they have to change knives. And they will continuously be checking the knives to make sure the knives stay sharp. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of the things that we put in place, benchmarks, to be able to check the, uh, the, you know, the efficiencies of it. But the biggest, uh, difficult, most difficult part is actually called stelling yachal, making sure that the knife is used special stones and certain knives that were made um, Back in the day, are the best knives today. There's something called a Miller knife, which you can't even get today. People pay thousands of it because it holds the metal. It's made in a certain way. It's a whole, whole science. So a kosher slaughter, as we can see over here, a Jew who doesn't know the laws of kosher slaughter may not slaughter. Any meat slaughtered by such a person is forbidden for consumption. Even a person who knows the laws of kosher slaughter should not slaughter alone before practicing many times under the supervision of an expert scholar and achieving proficiency in the technique. Only a person who is well-versed in the laws of shita and has practiced under supervision until achieving proficiency is considered a qualified expert. Even today's day and age, there is always growing up, and then back in the Hasidic world in Russia, for example, when there was in every town, there was a rabbi and a shochet. And the Hasidim always had a custom that if there was a choice, who should be the shochet? Let's say if there had to be the chassid was either the rabbi or the shochet, they chose that the shochet should be the chassid, because that's what they trusted more. If it's a rabbi, okay, you ask him a question, you don't ask him a question. The one that's cutting the meat, you're, it's absolutely trust you're putting in that person. And that's why even until today, people will only eat meat from, a per, from an industry that they personally know who the shochet is. So in order for what it means, so in order to be a, a ritual uh, shochet, number one, you have to know knowledge of laws, well-trained in technique, and know exactly what you're doing. But what happens? So if a community, of course, appoints a shochet, they know that this, quali- this, f- 
fellow who they appointed is qualified and has the credentials. But what happens if an unrecognized person comes to town to slaughter animals? You're talking about a town doesn't have a shochet. They fly in a shochet, they don't know who he is. So first they have to examine him, and if it's confirmed that he's indeed qualified, then it can be kosher. But what happens if he's no longer here? The guy came, he did all the slaughtering, and the guy says, oh, we forgot to check his credentials. He's not here anymore. Can I just assume that it's kosher? Or I have to say, maybe the guy was a fraud. Text number 10. A Jew came and slaughtered an animal and left before we were able to determine whether or not he was proficient practitioner that the meat may be, the meat may be consumed by Mamanita. Why? The rationale for this law is the majority of slaughter practitioners are experts. That means over here we're going on something which is called Roy. In Jewish law we go by majority. And being that over here I can say the majority of the people it's a highly specialized job. You don't go into the shochet industry because you just like playing with knives. Most people who are in the industry know what they're doing and therefore he's probably a qualified expert in this scenario. Oh, one second, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. I mean, not that case, but you'll see, be able to, you'll be able to draw your conclusion about that. Now, the question is, the question that everybody asks is an obvious question. Seemingly, why would you say this person's kosher? If an animal, before it's slaughtered, is presumed non-kosher, I don't know who the slaughterer is. So how can I make this animal kosher? I should leave the animal on its original, which original status is non-kosher, until I can definitively find out who the shochet was. Seemingly, I'm removing the original status, the chazaka, the presumed stature of the animal for a presumed stature of a human being. What gives me the strength to take out the presumed status of this animal, which is non-kosher, and making it kosher? A very good question, a very good question people ask in Maimonides. How can Maimonides come along and say that if I don't know who the shochet is, it's still kosher? I'm removing it from its presumed status. And I should add, the burden should be on me to prove that the shochet was righteous. And with this, Rabbi Yosef Dov Alevi Salavechik, the Beis Alevi, not the one from Wayum, talking about his grandfather, the Beis Alevi explains as follows. And says, We consider every Jew as certainly righteous. We are certain that they are particular about the laws of kosher, shechita, and wouldn't slaughter if they were his qualified experts. And as a result, we don't say that since there exists a minority of non-experts who slaughter, the animal remains established on kosher status. Among righteous Jews, there's not even a minority that would act improperly. The minority of righteous, unrighteous Jews isn't a factor worthy of consideration because every Jew that has not been established as a suspect must be considered as undoubtedly righteous. The presumption of righteousness is thus not just majority-based. We know that we know that there's an unrighteous minority present in the world at large. But every individual that we are evaluating must be considered as certainly righteous without reservation. 
And here from this Beis Alevi, we come to a clearer understanding of how we view the innocence, the presumed innocence of a Jew. What is he telling us over here? He's telling us, yes. <coughs> Are there frauds in the world? <coughs> Agreed. Are there people that dress up and they make believe that they're a shochem and they may not be? Can also be. But what's your question here? How is it possible that I'm taking a presumed non-kosher animal, or not a presumed, a non-kosher animal, and removing it from its original status and making it kosher based on a presumption of an individual? So the Beis Alevi says, yes, objectively speaking, in the abstract, I'm not naive. There are unscrupulous people in this world. There are evil people in this world. Yes, that's true, but that's a minority. But that doesn't qualify or unqualify or disqualify this individual. In the abstract, if I'm looking in the broader picture, <coughs> yes, there are unscrupulous people. But over here, I'm judging every single Jew, not because of another Jew, but because of who this person is. And every single Jew is judged for their own rights and their own merits. And therefore, every single Jew, we believe, is righteous until they prove otherwise. So this individual, even though I didn't examine him and see if he slaughtered the animal properly, but because I have a chazaka, I have a presumed innocence of righteousness of this shochet, though I never met him, because he's a Jew, I want scorpions people 100%. But that doesn't affect this individual. And therefore, when it comes to setting policy in advance, we set a broad view. Since we know that, theoretically speaking, there are people who are not scrupulous and therefore are not behaving appropriately, we said, okay, we need to examine them, we need to test them, just to be sure. But if the events already happen, in a case where we're evaluating an individual, we look at the individual for who he is, for his merits, and his merits means that he is righteous, and so prove another one. And therefore, I can rely on him, not only rely on him, he now takes that animal from its non-kosher status and makes it kosher. The same idea is also just by the way that we apply. You know, people say, ever go to a one-year-old's birthday party? Yeah. <laughs> why, are you going, why are you celebrating his birthday? Maybe this kid's going to grow up to be a chreisos, you know, the biggest unpleasant person. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says you should be celebrating when a person dies and mourning when a person's born. Why? Because when they die, you know what they accomplish. When they're born, who knows what they're going to end up being? Imagine what the people said by who knows that which anti-Semite's birthday, right? So, but what does the Rebbe tell us? Why do we celebrate a birthday? Why is a birthday such an important day? Because every single person is presumed righteous until they prove it wrong. And this one-year-old, this 15-year-old, this 80-year-old is righteous until you tell me otherwise. Now let's go to from the laws of ritual ownership, uh, from ritual slaughter, and let's take this to the laws of ownership. In the laws of ownership, as they say in English, Possession is nine-tenths of the law. You have it, that proves it's yours. In the words of the Talmud, you want to take something out of your friend, you got to prove that it's yours. That guy has it, it's the biggest proof that it's there. Jewish law takes it to an extreme. Let's see it in text number 12. Witnesses saw a person enter another's house and leave with items concealed beneath his garments. The possessor of the items claims that he bought it, while the owner of the house denies. The law is the case that the possessor is not believed. 
The principle only believe applies when the homeowner claims that the items in question were on loan, and the possessor claims that he purchased it. But if the homeowner claims that the items were stolen, his accusation is rejected, for we do not presume a person to be a thief without proof. What do we see from here? The Talmud is telling us, let's take the case. What's happening here? The case over here is Okay, so what happens in the case is, if the circumstances are highly suspicious, a guy is walking out of somebody else's house with something in his hand. The owner of the house says, I loaned it to him. The other guy says, I bought it. Then we believe the owner. But if the owner says, they're mine. The guy says, I stole them. The guy himself says, I, and I'm sorry, the owner says, he stole them. The guy says, I bought them. You believe the guy that's holding it. Why? Because we don't believe a person would say that he stole something without proof. There's another concept which is in general that we know that we're going to get to in a moment when a person doesn't make himself a Russia, a person doesn't consider, would not make himself evil for no reason. One would not sin if he doesn't have anything to gain from it, but that's a whole different discussion. But in this case, what we're talking about, it doesn't mean that we're naive and we close our eyes to any suspicious circumstance. And if there was in any way objectively that we can determine where anybody can show proof that it was either stolen or what happened over here, we would take it. The question over here is that we're talking about is, in this case, the presumption of righteousness takes us even further than it did in the case of the unknown slaughter. Over here, even if we, f here we follow the presumption of righteousness, even if there's a question about it, that means he took something, he's walking out of the person's house. He took something out of the person's house. And even though he took something out of the person's house, he's walking out of the house, we are not going to say he stole it. Why? Because we consider him righteous and we don't think he would be stealing. Yes. But it says here, when I'm reading it wrong, possessor of the items claims he purchased them, the owner says no. Correct. That means we don't but believe the owner that somebody would steal something unless you can prove it. Yeah, but it says, the, in this case, the owner, the possessor, the one who stole the items is not to be believed. That's what it says. Correct. So, which means that you're, that he, you're believing. Who's the burden of proof? <coughs> Who's the burden of proof? The Talmud of ruling that even though the possessor was seen leaving with the original owner's house carrying the objects, with no proof of purchase, correct? Mm -hmm. We cannot presume that he sold it. He stole them. We're going to trust the possessor. The possessor is the one holding it. Right, but it says it Again, the principle only applies when the homeowner claims that the items in question were on loan and the possessor claims that they were purchased. But if the homeowner claims that the items were stolen, right, his accusation is rejected. His, uh, follow his accusation. Whose accusation? The owner's accusation is rejected, and we do not presume a person to be a, a thief without them. Right, but on the paragraph before it says, while the owner of the house denies Correct. purchase, Correct. the possessor, the, the thief, Correct. is not believed. Is Correct, not believed. that's two different stories. So in other words, if the owner turns around and says he's a thief, then you can't convict him, but if he doesn't say anything, then you convict him. It Correct. Well, I'll tell you why. Very simple. If we're arguing about a loan or a purchase, 
then the burden of proof is on the person that's holding it to say, I purchased it, I did a loan. We both agree it wasn't yours to begin with. In the second scenario, the person who has it believes it's completely his. The person who's taken from, or the other person claims, it was taken from me. And he didn't pay for it. He's accusing him of stealing. It's a different thing. And therefore, when it comes to accusing a person of stealing of a crime, you need to prove the crime was committed. If you're saying that he, did, that he didn't buy it, it still belongs to me, just I loaned it to him, that means no crime was committed. He's allowed to hold those items. Okay, prove that he bought it. Show me the receipt. You both agreed that it was his initially. In this case, we're talking about the second case, you're accusing the possessor of a crime. And over here, the Talmud comes along and says, if you want to accuse a person of a crime, you got to prove it. So if you know this, then you just say, it's, uh, I had it on loan. So Very good question. So I mean, so Very good question. question. The Talmud asks that question. You know what the Talmud answers? What? Are we dealing with it? Yes. We're not talking about cases that, because the Talmud goes on to hold the story in the Talmud where the guy says, Rabbi Shimon comes along because all the cases that the thief could say, it's called a migui. The word migui means that if I would have had a better excuse, believe him on a lesser excuse, but if he was really lying, he could have said a better excuse. And the question the Talmud asked on the theory of migui, a guy can look into the Talmud, look what the better excuse is, make sure not to say it. So the Talmud says, we're not talking about a case where people are trying to rob one another. People just want to rob from another, but we can't. But the interesting thing is, in contrast to secular law, in the U.S. legal system, the questions about the facts of the case, who decides it? The jury. So the guy can come up in front of the jury, and they'll have to then question, who's the one that's stealing it? It's not a question of witnesses. I mean, they can then call witnesses to say, to burden the proof, and so on. And then they would have to do beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the difference would be, Beyond a reasonable doubt is only by criminal cases, correct? When it comes to civil cases, there only has to be a preponderance of evidence. So if there's a preponderance of evidence that they can prove, let's say this guy doesn't have a receipt in the U.S. legal system, they would make the guy get back the stuff. In the Jewish system, just because he doesn't have a receipt, we would tell the owner, say, prove to me a bill of sale. Not the purchaser, show me a receipt, which that's a very big difference. Who would have to bring the proof? The jury can tell in a secular court, they can tell the jury can come along and tell the purchaser, show me proof of sale, show me a receipt. In the Jewish system, because we assume every single person has a righteous individual, who has to show proof? The guy has to show a rule of sale, not the purchaser show a receipt. Do you see the, huh? The burden of proof would then fall on the person who is not the muhsak, the person who's not holding on to it, not the possessor, the accuser. While over here, the jury can't tell the defendant, we want you to show a bill of sale. Especially in a civil case where they only need a preponderance of evidence. And the very fact that this guy's holding on to it, they can accuse him. Now, the other way can go around as well. Does the defendant have to show a burden of proof because proven is the and guilt? What we see over here is that this takes it even a step further than the slaughter. That even though I have validity, that even though even I have reason to suspect, when I see him walking out with it, still at all, I have to presume his righteousness. There are different areas in Jewish law where a person is actually believed in the claim that he, that he was acted improperly and we don't believe that. What does that mean? 
that even if a person comes along to say, I did something wrong. I stole. We don't believe him. And there's many reasons why we don't believe him. One of them is because a person would not do anything, say that I am guilty of something, unless he has something to gain from it. A person wouldn't say that he sinned, but even more so we find, and the view that we're taking today is, that the reason is because a person cannot just get rid of his cheskas hashras, his righteousness, just by the mere fact of saying that he did. Let's see the story that the Talmud brings. The Talmud brings a fascinating story. Text number 13. Rabbi Gidl attempted to acquire a certain plot of land, but Rabbi Yadu preempted him and purchased it. Rabbi Gidl complained about Rabbi Yadu's actions to Rabbi Zerah, who relayed the complaint to Rabbi Yitzchik Nafcha. Rabbi Yitzchik Nafcha told him to wait until Rabbi Yadu would visit for the festival, at which point he would discuss the matter with him. When Rabbi Yadu arrived, Rabbi Yitzchik Nafcha asked him, what is the law in a case where a pauper moves in to acquire an ownerless loaf of bread that he found, but someone else came along and preempted him? Rabbi Abba applied, the one who took it away is referred to it. Rabbi Yitzchak Nafka pressed Rabbi Abba, so why did you act this way? Rabbi Abba replied, I did not know that Rabbi Gidl was trying to acquire the land. Now this case in the Western civilization doesn't apply because we believe in competition, open market, and people competing over the same item. But in Jewish law, this is an actual story where somebody had an honest misunderstanding, and the principle is as follows. That if I know somebody is going for a certain item, I am not allowed to circumvent and jump in front of him and take it. Over here, the fellow, over here, the person was trying to buy a piece of land. Another rabbi came and bought a piece of land and therefore accused him of jumping the line and getting it before him or offering a higher price to be able to get it. It was a simple misunderstanding that Rabbi Gidl said that he just simply did not know that he was going for it. What we see from over here is that even though the person is technically the sale would be valid, however, what is he called? Wicked, because since you jumped the line and took it away from another person. Based on this Jewish law about preempting a buyer, one of the codifiers of law, one of the commentators of the Talmud, addresses a case where an interesting scenario is. And the scenario is as follows. If I appoint a messenger to go as an agent, and I think this is a very common case in real estate agents. If I have a real estate agent that I signed a contract with and I ask him to be my agent to purchase the home. He comes to the home to look at it. He says, wow, this is a great house. What about if I keep the house for myself? And instead of buying the house for the person who sent him to do it, he buys the house for himself. What, what, what would be the case? And the Rans rule that because we presume that people act properly and do the right thing, even if the agent clearly tells us that he broke the law and acted wickedly, we refuse to believe it. And therefore, this, what he said is not true, and therefore we still consider him an agent and that he actually did buy the house. Let's see it in here. An interesting story. Text number 14. A person appointed someone to serve as his agent to purchase a specific property. The agent purchased the property without specifying in the purchase agreement that he was doing it on behalf of the principal. And now he claims that he purchased it for himself in a personal capacity. The law is that we reject the agent's claim on the grounds of the Talmud, labels such an action a deceitful conduct. And we operate on their assumption that the remnant of Israel will not commit injustice. Which this case takes us to an absolutely extreme, which is the Jewish presumption of innocence is not only where a person 
where we look at the individual, and even though I have proof maybe to say he did something wrong, I will assume that he's righteous. But even if he clearly tells me I purchased it for myself, what am I going to tell him? Nah, you don't do behave this way. You're a good Jewish boy. You would never do something wrong like that. And therefore, we would say that he did not act this way, and really he bought it for the person who it. Interesting thing is, in secular law, in this case, this, uh, this, uh, huh? I'm not sure what I would be able to sue the agent right. for not following the fiduciary obligation right. in being my agent. Because since if I hire an agent, he has a fiduciary obligation to do only what's in the best interest of me. Now, the difference would be, I think, in secular law, the sale would be a valid sale. I can then sue him for the profits that he made on the sale. But in Jewish law, the sale doesn't even begin because I say no. You never did such a thing, and therefore I don't believe him that he bought it for himself. Even when he says, I did it for myself. So in the case where he bought the land, where he acquired the land, he's still considered righteous anyway? If he's considered righteous, it's a different story. But we would say, we look at it as righteous, meaning that he did not steal this opportunity, and therefore he actually bought the land for his principal owner. Not that one, the other one, Rabbi Abba and Rabbi Giddel said because he didn't know. And there was a different story. It was just a misunderstanding. Okay. He didn't even know that it happened. Going back to, I know that I, I told you we mentioned about the slaughtering cases just because he brought up the story in Comex. In that case, they unfortunately checked the meat and it wasn't done properly and therefore they could no longer have the presumption of righteousness. That means people can lose their chestis kashrut. A person can lose their presumption of righteousness if we clearly see that they acted against it. And that's the difference. So now, let's say, for example, in that case of kosher, what is it, Hebrew National or something? So I'm not going to name, I'll say Hebrew National, unfortunately, they have been proven, that means after examination, they have been proven that, for example, just take one case, when no other place can get kosher meat, a certain cup of kosher meat, there happens to be under the brand of Hebrew National. When they went there to check the slaughterers, they checked their knives, they found, or they checked their methods of slaughtering, they were not found to be, let's say, the way they should be. Yeah, but from what I understand, Hebrew National rectified it, they fixed it or something? I, I, but all I can tell you, all I can tell you, that in my conversations with, not the rabbis of Hebrew National, but with certain establishments who use Hebrew National, uh, there was a restaurant that was open here for a while in the uh, in the mall that was called the Kosher Delicatessen. There was not even a rabbi there. There was not even a Jewish person there at any time to even know. I'm not talking about even about the meat. To even know the grills that were used there. And I'm not. And it could be the workman who did it innocently. If he bought something, he was in the food market in the mall. And if he bought his burger next door and he just warmed it up on the grill in his own place, nobody would have ever known. Nobody would know, and that's why there's a law concerning kosher meat. Just to give you a, uh, an example, if you're sitting on a plate, and you have a salami sandwich with you, and you open up the salami sandwich, and you open it up, your sandwich, and you want to go wash the bread, you come back, you cannot eat the salami sandwich. Because according to Jewish law, there's something called basr shenasalam open meat that's not labeled, that 
was not being washed, we don't know because all meat looks exactly the like. How do I know that the salami sandwich that they were serving on a plane wasn't switched with you? And therefore, there has to be some symbol on it. That's why you'll notice all kosher meat, when it's delivered, has an extra layer of tape. And that's with wine, with meat, and so on. Anything that doesn't have an identifiable way of knowing what it is. So now, in the case of, let's say, so if they have other supervisions, now mustards and sauerkrauts don't fall under the same strictness as when it comes to meat. To make kosher mustard doesn't take much. And probably all ingredients are kosher. It's just a question of as long as they're not putting any shortening in it. In today's day and age, the problem, the problem is that in today's day and age, there are many different chemicals that are put into things or ingredients that are used and if one does not know what things are, we can't rely on ingredients. Just to give you a little example. Apple juice, when it's used for a cleansing process, they use a certain type of gelatin to be able to know the clear apple juice. So that when you get apple juice from an apple, it's not so shiny and clear. It's because they put it through a cleaning process. The cleaning process is used a chemical-based gelatin. Now, today they don't do it anymore because of um, people vegan and uh, vegetarian and all that stuff, but there are some people that do it. And the same thing as well. There was a scenario that they found in a company that they were using lard just to be able to grease the panel because they wanted to make it all natural. So in order to get the food, or whatever the bagels, to keep them smooth and going across the, be uh, the belt, they would use lard. Now, if you wouldn't have supervision on those things, you would never know. It's not in the ingredients, but it makes the item unkosher. No. You know, I don't want to get into the whole kosher scenario, but my point over here is that while we can presume innocence, and that's on every single Jew who presumes they have the righteousness, and they are righteous and true, at the same time, if a person does something advertently and clearly removes that righteousness, then we have reason to suspect. So how did they get that righteousness back? Why the that's a very good question. They have to go out of their way to prove that they're righteousness, and the same way a shochet will have to bring another shochet, another rabbi, to show that they're correct. They will have to have others to testify that they have proven the righteousness. Back. So that's a good question. Okay. So let's take here's a scenario, and let's and this is going back. This is going to go back to Sherman and Merrin's argument that people are good today or not. The world became a better place. Here's a stu case study. Text number fifteen. Researchers planted 17,303 wallets in 355 cities on, on every continent except Antarctica. The American segment conducted in 2015 involved 25 cities including Albuquerque, Chicago, Memphis, and New York. The wallets transparent business cards cases with constant uh, instant visible con contained three business cards with a male name common to the country, Dmitry Tivanov for Russia, Tono Hendriata for Indonesia, Peter Kahika for Kenya. The American names were Brad O'Brien, Brett Miller, and Connor Baker. Each business card listed an email address and identified the man as a freelance software engineer so people wouldn't try contacting their employees. Each wallet contained a key and a handwritten grocery list in the native language, milk or locally analogous drinks. Bread, pasta, rice, and noodles, bananas, some wallets had no money inside, some had 1345 in the local currency, adjusted to a comparable value to each country. Then they ran the experiment again in three countries. 
Poland, the United Kingdom, and the United States, adding big money wallets containing 9415. Question that I have for you is, what percentage, what percentage of people do you think would return the wallet in three different scenarios? A, with no money, B, with 1345 in it, C, 9415. What I, do you think people would I answer this question because that was my wild about four or five. Okay. And each time it was returned. And each time there was a different amount of money in it. Do you remember how much money you put in it? <laughs> no, but, each, but, sometimes, but I, I gave the person money no matter what it was. But each time there was a different amount of money than when I last. But when do you think people are more likely to return the wallet? When there's no money, when there's less money, or when there's more money? No money. Huh? No money. You see, that's why you both have a different opinion before. They're getting worse and better. An interesting study. People are generally more righteous and moral than they tend to give them credit for. And that is, they found in the study, and you can look at the figure on to figure 6.1. It so happened to be the more money there was in the wallet, the more likely it was for people to return it. Researchers did a study that when people expected the lost wallet report rate to be, the popular wisdom was that the less likely when there was be less money. But it happened to be there was more of a reporting. You can see actually reporting rate in this scenario here was over 60% reporting rate when there was big money and less than 40% when there was no money. And as you can see over here, the study shows us that people are more righteous and more moral and getting better less than we give them credit for. The truth is, I'm saying. Maybe they will find more religious Jews. Maybe they will find more religious Jews. The truth is, now let's go a step further. And this is true and almost in every case. That our perspective we, weigh, we view people is, we have to view them a little more favorably. And therefore, Jewish laws we learned before is that we have to do it. One that judges his fellow favorably is judged favorably by God. Let me just say, yeah. I viewed every person who returned a wallet favorably. <laughs> Absolutely. Who is the wallet contained my driver's license, a number of credit cards, another, uh, a number of other items, and I felt that even though uh, that the, the money was like a finder's fee, I had no problem with it. I really didn't. I, I never got annoyed with any of them. Uh, and I felt strongly that, that I was happy that they tracked me down in some way. I mean, sometimes I know they did it, and they were able to get me the wallet, which was much more important than the limited amount of money I had in the wallet. So I was very happy with every one of them. I, I, but? Uh, no, I, huh. I, I thought of them favorably. It, it, it so the, my point is not only think of them favorably, you have to think of the world more favorably. And the truth, of the, pudding, the truth is that as much as terrible things are happening around the world, the flip side of it, there's much more good happening in the world. The only difference is that the bad happens to make more, makes headlines while the good doesn't. I just want to say one thing. Yeah, sure. This is the wealthiest country in the world. And when people have money that is enough to uh, exist on and buy, not everything, no one has, you know, unless you're very wealthy. Of course. No, they, they, you can buy what you want, you can buy food, you can buy, mm -hmm. you know, clothes, you're not worried about a house over, you know, a roof over your head. People tend to be more honest on some level, in my opinion, because it's it's not it's not an existential threat. I'll, but I'll tell you. I'll, can I argue with that point before you continue to the next one? Because you're talking about America. Yeah. This oh this study A was done in more than one country. It was done in many countries. 
not only that, you will find, I think, study has found, that the people that are more honest are not the wealthy people, are the poorer. The poorer amongst us, if you want to call it, are usually the more honest people. You find a guy that's a shrewd businessman, a billionaire, and you can have a hundred people that have something to say about him. Well, maybe because the poor guy doesn't have a hundred people that know him in business, maybe another problem. Maybe if he would reach that level, people would have to say about it. But we find in poorer countries. Another thing, which is interesting, it's also an attitude of a country. There are many wealthy countries around the world. Saudi Arabia is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. But their generosity level is one of the lowest. What they contribute to the world poverty. What they contribute to the world population. Except if you're Jared Kushner. The America, America, it happens to be a generous country. And not only is it a generous country, it has an effect on the people that live in the country. Even England. I, I know people that do uh, fundraising for a profession. In England, if you get a hundred pounds from somebody, you hit the, you're, you're, over here people give a hundred dollars to check, the average donation in America to the average donation in Europe is by leaps and bounds much more. Not because people are earning more. It's because a culture, we live in a culture of generosity. And you could say, maybe it's because we live in plenty, we live in a life of plenty, thank God. But at the end of the day, we live in a culture of giving. You go into the grocery store, they ask you for a dollar for this type of uh, illness or a dollar for this type of organization. We live in a culture of giving. That's what America is called Medina Shalchesa, a country of kindness. And I think we have to look at it that way, and we have to look at new people this way, and until they prove us otherwise, let's hope that we can look at people <coughs> in a very righteous and kind way. Because when we look at people righteously, God looks at us righteously. What about They're pretty up there. If you look at the amount of countries that Israel goes from, that's because Jewish people have within them one of the definitions of what makes a person Jewish is that they have the attribute of righteousness and charitable. In fact, there's a story in the prophets that King David rejected a nation from converting. He knew that they were the proper converts because he saw that they were not merciful. Jewish people, tell me another country in the world before they bomb a building, they drop leaflets, please leave. <laughs> Only Jewish people. Lesson six, beyond the presumption of innocence. One, we have a natural tendency to judge ourselves favorably, a courtesy we typically fail to extend to others. Jewish values train us to extend our personal positive bias to others. Two, Judaism views all humans as essentially good by nature on account of the pure divine soul we possess. Negative conduct is viewed as a foreign imposition on our basic nature. 3. Jewish law views individuals as righteous unless clearly proven otherwise. Unknown people are afforded more than the benefit of the doubt due to a lack of evidence. They are treated as certainly righteous based on the positive nature native to all humans. In certain cases, Jewish law refuses to accept a person's own claim that they acted unethically due to the underlying presumption of righteousness. 5. Behavioral studies demonstrate that people are typically more virtuous than we assume. 6. 
Judaism teaches us not to judge people based on statistics or beliefs regarding the broader public, but to assess others with a favorable eye based on their individual merits. So as we conclude this course, we learned a lot of unbelievable things of how we behave ourselves in the business world and Jewish law versus secular law. And you just want to conclude with a little uh, video that they're ever talking about a bunch of business people of how we have to conduct our business.
נניח פיארד כדי כך, היד ביטנסמן, עוד צריכים את יד תור, עוד קודם הקולצוויילד, ואז מקדיש, מקדוס האנגלית, יזיים ברדן, דורזיו, דמוס ברדן, קרטיו, משארס נורדה, פליילסו, ‫הגדולה <laughs> Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hope you all enjoyed. Rabbi, I just have one question. Yes, sure. Do I have something in my mind that never existed where the Rebbe said something?